Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A mid-morning dance with the devil from the farmer of fury. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's the day we've all been waiting for, the beginning of the end, the start of another chapter as we edge ever closer to leaving the European Union on March the 29th. Or not, the MPs have all returned from their holidays and nothing, and I mean nothing, has actually changed. Prime Minister Theresa May is up in Liverpool announcing a plan to save half a million more lives in the next ten years and actually not taking the credit for it. International Trade Secretary Liam Fox was over in Hollywood attending the Golden Globes, because that's very important, of course, and a collection of former cabinet ministers and Labour peers are trying to hold the government to ransom over a no-deal deal. Tom Brake uh, is also involved in that. He's a Lib Dem Brexit spokesman. Uh, we're going to talk to him about that as well. All in all, the shambles continues and we're back at the Independent Republic to try and make sense of it all and it may involve our return to College Green in Westminster as early as tomorrow a week from now they'll all get a chance to have a meaningful vote on the deal on the table they've just announced uh, that it's going to happen on the 15th a week tomorrow unless the Prime Minister decides to just forget the whole thing between now and then. The government could still win the vote though especially if Labour abstains as they've indicated they might do and the second referendum brigade are still charging their tanks for another attempt at derailing democracy. Great isn't it? Meanwhile, down in Kent today, there's a no-deal lorry park practice going on and a disused airfield. What is the point of that exactly? 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on the show, we're finding out why the Spice Girls have turned down 80 million quid to tour America and why a quarter of university courses are literally not worth the paper they are written on. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, when you go to university, you assume that you're going to get a qualification which is going to qualify you uh, to get a better job than the one you would have got had you not gone to university. Now, having got uh, a couple of children of university age uh, some years ago, uh, one of them did go to university, one of them did not. One of The one who did not never really fancied it, never really wanted to do a type of job that was going to require a degree. And so he never did and he never bothered and he's doing fine. Thank you very much indeed. And more and more kids, I think, are beginning to learn that that is the case. Uh, the uh, Onward Think Tank has found 
that basically there's an awful lot of Mickey Mouse degrees, as they're called in the Daily Mail. Uh, Norwich University College of the Arts, Bath Spa University mentioned, the University of Bolton, the Arts University College at Bournemouth, University of Derby. I dare say even some people doing media studies these days are going to come out of university with a degree, with a qualification, and they're never going to earn enough money to start paying back the actual loan. So many of them will only make around £20,000, £21,000 a year, which is horrendous. Let's talk to Will Tanner, uh, the founding director of Onward, uh, and he can tell us more about this. Will, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Um, I say that we're probably not all that surprised by this, but but your, your study is very detailed and very helpful, I think, to a lot of parents who will be having these conversations with their children, asking them if they really want to go into £50,000 worth of debt, if they really feel they have to go to university, what are they going to get out at the other end of it? Thank you very much. Um, I think I think that's absolutely right. Um, we've heard from politicians for a number of decades now that university will always be worth it. It will always deliver higher earnings. Mm. But actually what we find in our analysis of the government's own data is that 40% of graduates were enrolled in courses which didn't deliver £25,000 a year after five years, and 10% of students were enrolled in courses that didn't deliver £25,000 after 10 years. Wow. So 10 years after they're at university, they're still not paying back any of their loan. Right. And £25,000 is, is, the, is the threshold, isn't it? Does that kick in after five years, or does it kick in straight away? How does it work? So the, that's the threshold. So any time you're earning above £25,000, you're starting to repay back your loan. Um, so effectively, none of those students will be repaying their loan and quite a significant number will never repay their loan at all. Right. OK. And which kind of gives the lie, does it not, to students saying it's a terrible situation that you have to face because, you know, we're going to go into uh, uh, this massive kind of investment programme in reverse. And no matter what happens, we're going to not be able to pay off the debt. We're going to be struggling to buy houses, struggling to save any kind of money at all. But it's a very reasonable repayment scheme, isn't it? Well, actually, so what we find is that there are lots of people, as you say, who never repay. Those people have £55,000 worth of debt hanging over them um, for 30 years, and then they never repay. At the other end of the spectrum, you have higher rate-paying graduates who have a higher marginal tax rate than we charge for most uh, really high-earning people of above £150,000. Those people are paying back 51 pence in every pound that they earn Uh because of the very high repayment rates that we have on student loans. So our argument is that we should be giving those people at the higher end actually a tax cut to to give um, 2 million graduates uh, um, significantly lower um, repayment rates than than they currently repay. Okay, and what sort of money are we talking about, sort of globally here, if you like, in terms of what the government is not getting back on an annual basis? How many millions of pounds is that? So we say that if you reduce the number of low value courses, um, so reduce the number of courses by ten percent, taking that out from the low value courses, that would save about a billion pounds a year, right. which could be reinvested into a tax cut for two million graduates. Yeah, I mean, presumably this also would point the finger to some extent at the universities themselves, because we've been talking over the last week or so to quite a few sort of university um, associations, if you like, people who are saying that there's a, you know the No Deal Brexit is going to be a worry for them; they're going to lose a lot of research money coming from the European Union. Others saying that you know a lot of them have have kind of ratcheted up their their um, uh, their borrowing in order to try and attract more students, but less students are now coming. So financially speaking, a lot of these um, educational institutions are suffering. Do they not really need to look at rebranding and restructuring themselves? I think that's absolutely right. Lots of universities are dependent on 
um, uh, low value courses in order to sustain um, high levels of borrowing and a significant expansion over the last few years. Yeah. Actually, what we would say is that universities should focus on those courses which do deliver value for students and for the taxpayer right. um, to grow those courses and to invest in higher value technical education for students uh, who want to study those type of courses rather than just channeling people into low-value degrees. Yeah, exactly, because we're hearing, for example, I mean, I know that, that everything is connected in my world, so I'm going to just connect a few things for you. You know, there's a big announcement by the NHS today saying that they're going to be hiring more doctors, more nurses, uh, they're going to be promising to save half a million lives over the next 10 years. You know, do we not need to be kind of training more doctors and training more professionals, as it were? Of course we do. Um, and actually, what we found in our data is that medicine and dentistry are two of the highest paying uh, um, uh, careers that people can do after university. They're two of the right. best courses that people can do for their earnings. Right. So that would be good for the NHS, but it would also be good for those students and taxpayers. Yeah. So some of these are places that you list, like the University of Winchester, University of Wolverhampton, Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts, where people are coming out and earning as little as £17,000 a year with a, with a qualification. And I know that not everything should be driven by money. Money. But I mean, it's very clear that some of these universities are just sort of churning people out for the money, aren't they? Well, I think I think those universities have a question to answer about uh, the fact that those students are earning so little five years after university mm. or 10 years after uni leaving university. Um, a lot of those universities sell their courses on the basis of the careers that those people will do afterwards. Right. And clearly those careers aren't delivering the earnings that those students might expect. OK. Now, I'm told that you, the earliest you have to start repaying your student loan is, is the 6th of April, the year after you graduate uh, from either university or college, providing that you earn over something like 18,330 quid a year. I mean, presumably at some point or other, uh, at that stage, you're, you're paying back so little that it's almost not worth paying it back, is it? Well, you'll be paying back a repayment rate of 9%. Right. So, um, uh, so actually, that's quite a significant portion of people's income, uh -huh. um, especially at a time when those people might be wanting to save for a deposit for a house, uh, wanting to pay towards childcare. I mean, it's a really crucial time in people's lives when actually disposable income matters, mm. um, and uh, we're depriving them of it by having really high repayment rates. And what's your preferred system then? Because obviously, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when there wasn't that many people going to university and you would get uh, all your fees paid and you would even get a grant. Even if your parents were reasonably well off, you'd get the minimum grant, which might not have been that much, but it was something. Yes, our system, uh, we, we propose um, basically reducing the number of people going to university. We yes. do think that too many people go to university. And we say that we should do that by... Um, effectively stopping student loans being uh, applicable to certain courses, basically stopping stop the government saying that some courses shouldn't warrant a £9,000 student loan and saying that some courses might have a, uh, a minimum grade floor. So you have to do, uh, have a certain number of grades in order to do certain courses at university. Yeah. Could you, in your uh, thesis, also somehow strike a big red line through media studies? Because so many people do it and so few people actually end up working in the media. Yes, indeed. So creative arts is the group of, um, uh, of courses, which I think includes media studies. That's the most popular degree. 125,000 students do that a year. Yeah. Uh, and yet they have the lowest earnings of any type of degree. Um, so, so clearly there's a bit of a mismatch between the type of people going to do courses and the people coming out with good earnings yeah. afterwards. And I'm imagining as well that actually very few of those people who do graduate with media studies actually end up working in the media. They end up doing other things probably. 
Well, we don't know, we don't have specific uh, job uh, data for what people do after university. All we know is basically how much they earn five and ten years afterwards. Okay. But um, but our view is that, that clearly those people aren't doing high flying course uh, high flying careers if their courses aren't delivering those earnings potential. And is it possible that that schools could do more? You know, the stage before university, I suppose, to be more vocational in some way, or to or to point people in one direction or another, or to maybe sift people earlier. So the proposal we make is that. Uh, schools should do much more to encourage people to do technical qualifications. We know that apprenticeships and and kind of degree level uh, technical uh, um, applications have significantly higher um, earnings than actually most or lots of university degrees. Lots of those low value degrees, people would be better off doing an apprenticeship instead. So we should be changing things like UCAS and the the yeah. application process for mm-hmm. higher education in order to encourage technical education. Okay. I've got an interesting tweet here from somebody called Bruins. He says, I know two kids who will have a debt of around £75,000 each when they have their aerospace engineering master's degrees, but they then plan to go to the US where they get paid more and pay no debt. What are we doing to make it more appealing to them to stay here? Well, I guess that's that's maybe down to the industry, isn't it? Well, actually, that's one of the key reasons why we think you should introduce a graduate tax cut. Uh-huh. Because if you um, introduce a graduate tax cut, then it, people will be getting money back for the, on every payment they make, which will encourage them to stay in the UK and pay pay taxes in the UK. Right. If if you if you introduce um, uh, other changes, like some of the changes the government and Labour have, have suggested, you're, you're encouraging brain drain. You're encouraging those people to go to the US so they never pay back their student loans. Right. And there's no way of kind of enforcing that, I suppose, is there, once they're out of the country? No. So people only repay when they're in the country, as I understand. So, um, uh, so those people going to the US... Uh, won't won't be repaying their loan. Uh-huh. That's something that we need to fix in the current system. Right. And if, for example, um, you're you're below the threshold of repayment of the loan for uh, for more than ten years, is there a point at which the loan is just kind of written off and forgotten? The loan is written off after thirty years. Thirty. So, um, wow. Yes, indeed. That's so, a long so time. Like you repay that loan for up to thirty years, but after thirty years, it it repays. Right. And I mean, I've, I've had similar conversations with, with, with other people about these loans before. Is there an issue as well with credit ratings and things? I mean, I know that supposedly it's not going to affect your credit rating, but we all know that credit ratings are mysteriously strange things to work out. And I'm sure that if you did have a student loan that was outstanding, it would it would be bound to have some kind of bearing on that. I'm not sure in particular. We haven't looked into the integration between credit ratings and student loans, unfortunately. Oh, okay. All right. Well, not to worry. Will, listen, thank you very much indeed. Will Tanner, founding director of Onward, uh, the think tank, which has done a fascinating study about how at least 25% of the courses which are taken by students in this country never repay the loans uh, that the kids have actually taken out in order to go to university in the first place. So they are literally not worth the paper that they are written on. There is no point in getting this degree because you won't make much money uh, at the other end of it anyway and you will make so little money that you will never be forced to pay the money back to the government that you borrowed so if you're say owing the government something like thirty thousand, then basically they'll never get that money back which has got to be wrong hasn't it mark is in castleford hello mark good morning mike and but, if it's not too late a happy new year no indeed yourself, I, I i think we can still do it for the next day or maybe two yeah i think so okay well what do you want to... to a maverick who's done all right for himself <laughs> here? Then am I? <laughs> yeah, well, I think so. I think being a maverick is is all well and good as long as you're willing to take the hits, as long as you uh, uh, take the successes. Gosh, 
course you are, yeah. And I think what you're talking about today, Mike, if it wasn't for Brexit, this would be quite high up the agenda. Oh, I, very much so, yeah. I, I, I'm of that age where, you know, my, one of my sons at university, lots of friends, their children are at university, and I, I am... I am I'm not one for hyperbole, but I'm shocked at, number one, the myths that they're sold, and yeah. number two, the practices that I see go on at universities. My son's had a month off. Mm. I don't know why the heck he's had a month off right. over Christmas. No, no. He's, I mean, he's he is really hardworking. He's got himself a job. He works all his holidays. But why are these universities allowed to charge so much on a myth that you will get higher earnings... The myth is based upon some, re- as, as the chap before um, explained. You know, you take a lot of high high end earners, and they can really even out the curve for those that are doing, you know, medieval studies or something yeah. like that. And the myth right. that they're sold is, oh, you'll get higher earnings. Well, no, you won't. You need to look at specifically your course. No, of course, and- absolutely right. Because this is the trouble, though, with our modern society. I was talking to somebody about this over the weekend, uh, who was kind of saying that I'm always arguing with people because I don't believe anything. And I'm like, that's not the, the case. But what I don't believe and what I don't swallow is general mass generalizations, which is how we now are are told to live our lives. You know, like you know, for example, I don't know. You know, we're now told that you know 58% of people now want to remain in the European Union. Well, how do you know that? You don't know that. It's rubbish. And stop saying it. No, and, and and you were right to touch on the kind of group think that's coming out of universities. There's a kind of almost, uh, well, yeah, they're in a huge big echo chamber, yeah. a lot of them. And, 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 and so consequently, what all the chancellors do is they all charge the maximum, regardless of how many hours they get taught, right. regardless of, of how, you know, my nephew, he does chemistry. He does a lot of hours a week in labs and things like that. And yet there's other people who do 10 or 8 hours a week. Mm. They're not in labs. They don't have all the equipment. There seems to be a lot of cross-subsidy going on. You look at, you you know, I'm I'm just looking at it and thinking, why the heck don't you differentiate between the courses? But most of all, I think what the young people should be told is, uh, perhaps people like you, if you go and study English literature, do not expect, to go to a high-end job unless you do something else. Yes, You need exactly. to look really carefully at the course you do and then take a, take an opinion on no, it. No, I think and that the higher education sector has become a massive confidence trick, basically, on the rest of us because the Blair Brown New Labour project turned it into a massive business, and that's what it is. And the fact that they like pretend it, that this is all about educating the new generation is a lot of old cobblers. It is, Mike. It became prizes for everyone. We've yeah. got 50% going, and, and I don't believe that there needs to be that many going i really don't what no. it's allowed the universities to do you look around some of the big cities i you know go through some of the northern cities you see the building that's going on for accommodation which they also have a handle on yeah. you see the buildings going on for a new faculty of, of, of whatever it is and it's right. all leveraged against young people and their parents yeah. and i hate to say this mike when your two youngest come up to that age in a few years time you'll be spitting like i am the fact that they pull up at on December the 14th, and you say, how long am I here for? Oh, mm. just I'm going back in January the 14th. And you go, what the <laughs> blooming heck of those lecturers? Yeah, I know. And they're, and they're still all charging top whack. Well, of course they are, because guess what? When the when the government says to you, you can charge up to £9,000 for a, a, a year's uh, tuition, they go, OK, we'll charge 9000 quid then. You know, there was no I mean, attempt to kind of to slightly filter it or to or to gauge it as to which degree was going to be better. And everybody knows. I mean, when I was working in the newspaper business and I would see people's CVs on a regular basis and replying for jobs, you know, the fact that they've all got degrees means that you then basically break up the degrees depending on which university they've got the degree from. 
Exactly, Mike. And, and I think the other thing as well, and they're, they're just beginning to touch on this. I read something the other week on it. The first few universities are just beginning to put their head above the parapet, get away from that groupthink and say, we might offer degrees that last two years. Yeah. So we won't have all, we won't have a month off at Christmas. We won't finish like most of them do in June and come back in mid-September. What we'll do is we'll condense the course into two years. And I think the first university that really jumps will get loads and loads of, of applicants. Yes. Why? Because people will think, hang on, instead of paying three lots of nine grand a year, I only have to pay two lots of yeah. nine grand a year. But it just takes one brave university, one maverick university, Mike. Yes, indeed. <laughs> to, to, well, maybe we'll make that over. the word of the week, Mark, and we'll see if we can find some mavericks down in Westminster to build us all up uh, for the week <laughs> following that. Thanks very much indeed for your call. Anthony, very good morning, uh, very good afternoon to you, I should say. Yeah, good afternoon, Mike. Thank, uh, nice to hear from you. your show. Well, listen, Happy New Year to you. Thank you very much for calling. That's a pleasure. Now then, um, I think that the bottom 50 of the 150 universities we've got should immediately be demoted to polytechnics and that all the professional bodies like the accountancy body, legal body, engineering institutes and so on Mm. should be submitting every year an anticipated number of... uh, graduates that they need for their professions yes. um, to the government so they're thinking say five years hence for legal and, mm. and what a so good on. idea what a good and idea that they should run that number of courses in the universities plus say five percent for contingency yes and no more and incidentally there already is a university that does two-year courses that's Buckingham. Oh, is that right? A okay. Private university. Yeah, they always have done. And, and how how cost how costly is that? Is is it? Do they charge sort of nine grand a year? Grand. It's about eleven grand, but okay. that's only twenty two right. instead of twenty seven. I I I did a sandwich course uh, at university, uh-huh. which was two and a quarter years to get my engineering degree. And the rest of the time was spent in industry. Right. So the moment I graduated, I could do a proper engineer's job mm. because I got the practical knowledge as well as the theoretical. Sure. Well, when I was at university many when, when I was at university many years ago, I was at university with a couple of electrical engineers and they uh, were basically put through university, one by the navy and another by Siemens the company. So there does that go on anymore or does that not happen anymore? I'm not sure. It's uh, 50 years since I went to university. Huh. Right. Well, it's not quite as long ago as that that I went, but but you know, it's it's graduated in seventy one. Okay, all right, that was a great time to go to university, I bet. Yeah, it was all free and paid for, and there were very few people that went to university. But it was only only sort of top ten percent. But I mean, one of the things went to polys and did HMCs and HMDs and things like that, which was perfectly reasonable and worked perfectly well until they decided to try and push more people into higher education and make and it it has been done as a business. There's no other way to explain it. Absolutely. The other thing that happened in my era was that people that couldn't get into university went to teachers training college. That was the next step down. So then you got a load of lousy teachers into schools yeah. in the 70s and 80s and beyond mm. because they couldn't even get to university no right that's the so, problem i like uh, your idea though i think getting an getting an idea of how many people in certain fields we need and then filling those uh, those jobs is the way to go anthony thanks very much indeed great call it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, the story is about about a guy called Richard Mason, who's 55 years of age. He was told by doctors that he was infertile in 2016, right? Uh, Unfortunately, by that stage, he'd raised three boys to whom he believed he was the father. Now, it turns out, and of course, uh, he was not the father, even though his wife had told him that he was the father. And immediately, uh, she denied that she'd had an affair with any kind of colleague. Uh, She refused to name anybody that she emailed may not have been consulting with. This guy is co-founder of the price comparison site moneysupermarket.com. His eldest son is 23. Uh, He's got two 19-year-old twins as well. Uh, The shock of discovering the truth, he says, left him contemplating suicide. He says, I still regard them as my boys, even though I am not their biological father and I miss them so much. He's now offering £5,000 for information to help him identify the real father who is not thought to have contributed financially to their upbringing. It's an incredible story. Very unusual one. Uh, However, maybe not as unusual as you might think. Let's talk to Vanessa Lloyd-Platt and find out what she knows about this particular situation. Vanessa, a very good morning to you. uh, Afternoon, I should say. Good morning. And Happy New Year as well. Yes, and Happy New Year to you and all your listeners. Thank you. Um, It is not unusual, this kind of story. We've, ha- Although the lawyer in the case said it was the first of its kind, in fact, it isn't the first of its kind. There have been many cases over the years where people have discovered, um, unfortunately, that they are not the uh, blood relatives of their own children mm. and um, have gone for a clawback in the courts to, to claw back money that they might have paid for school fees or for maintenance. Um, so it is a 
a situation that very sadly we as practitioners do come across. Yeah. Well, this is the thing that I was quite surprised about because I was reading a piece about some of these DNA investigating companies in America. Lots of people are giving presents to each other of, you know, find out about your DNA ancestry, you know, via post and all that kind of thing. And there's one particular woman in Connecticut uh, who wanted to find out about her antecedents. And it turned out when she got her brother to do the same, that they were not, in fact, brother and sister. In fact, they were half brother and sister, which led her to believe uh, and discover that her mother had had an affair with somebody else. Yes, I've read about that too. And it's really sad. And it's quite devastating when, when people do discover this. And quite often people come to us and say, what should we do? Yeah. What should we do with this information now? But once a word of caution, people think that it's perfectly acceptable to take someone's DNA and have it tested for these paternity issues. It's actually a criminal offence to take someone else's DNA. So, for example, we've had cases where people have taken hairbrush samples and had them tested by these laboratories and said, oh, you know, I've discovered this, that and the other. Mm. But, in fact, it's criminal. It's against the privacy laws and you cannot steal someone's DNA. Right. So going off and, and, and doing your own DNA testing, you can sometimes get yourself into awful trouble. No. If you do feel that, that there is this um, issue that's lurking, you can apply to the courts for there to be an order for production of DNA. But if the, pers- the other person actually refuses, the court can all they can do is draw adverse conclusion. They cannot force someone to deal with the DNA test. No, so I, I mean, I'd just drop that in. No, I think that's very wise of you to do so, Vanessa, because of course people spend so much time watching these TV shows and they think that it's all terribly easy to go around investigating your own world uh, and, and it's you're, you're right to point out that you know you can't just you know trample all over everybody else's human rights but the thing about I suppose these DNA testing kits if you like for want of a better phrase uh, is that they're yeah. causing perhaps more harm than good because in the I mean I'm not particularly interested in finding out who my distant relatives are. I'm, I'm quite happy with my parents. I'm not questioning what it was that they got up to when they were raising me or when they were conceiving mm. me. And quite frankly, there doesn't seem to be anything good that could come out of it. So why bother? Right. I think for some people, I know some people have had this done because they want to know the true uh, background of their medical history. And if they find out they're not actually linked to the person they thought they were, then their medical history can be completely wrong and that that can be fatal for them. So that's the, the reality for some people. But on this particular case, I found it really, really sad that this gentleman, um, and nobody knows what they would feel like if they were placed in this position, but he went off to have a medical test, and during that medical test was told that he couldn't possibly have fathered his three children. Right. So then he learned the devastating news from the doctor that his children could not possibly have been his. He then has to make the big decision, what is he going to do about it? And I know there's been huge debates in in the media over should he have left it well alone because he brought these children up as his own children and they regarded him as their father, or should he have gone to do what he did, which was to claw back some of the divorce settlement that he's had with his wife and got back 250000 which represented all the school fees yeah. and maintenance. 
Now, there are those people out there very ready to judge him and say, you know, that's very mean of him. Uh, what about the children? How did they feel? But I don't think any of us would know how we would feel right. if we were faced with that situation. And I think from from my experience of dealing with these cases, uh, when we've had them, in one particular case, there was a gentleman that discovered that his children weren't his, and he had this big dilemma. And in the end, he decided his children were to him his children. And why put them through what would otherwise be then not knowing what their identity was. So he decided not to do anything about it. And he recently contacted me and said it was the right decision. Yes. But it's not everybody can, can have the strength of mind to do that if they discover that they have been cheated upon and, and lied to in the way that this gentleman felt he had been. Well, indeed. And you have to worry that uh, uh, the, the, the effect that it has had on his relationship with the, with the boys, because they are now... Uh, old, older, most of them, and I think only one of the two twins actually replies to his messages. The other two think what he did was disgraceful. But you can imagine, in his yeah. situation, he actually says, uh, "Imagine being told you're going to die, and your three sons are not your own." He says, "My my life completely fell apart." And I think, I suppose, because he was divorced, had he not been divorced, maybe things would have been different, and he would have just kind of kept his mouth shut and decided to carry on with the with the yeah. pretense you know as it were but maybe he felt bitterness towards her maybe their divorce wasn't particularly a nice one as many of them are not and you know let's face it she did kind of um misrepresent herself at the very least yes well i think he felt huge anger and shock at what he discovered and i think he probably needs to reacted and this is why I always say to any of my clients that ever find themselves in this position, before you rush to do anything about it, think of the impact on the children. Yeah. Do you want these children to still be regarded as your children? They, in, in every possible way, they have been your children. Or do you want to take the risk that it will sever your relationship with them? You know, we've had one client that turned around and he said... I don't want to ever see my children again. Yeah. They're not my children. I never want to see them again. Now, the impact on those children as well was enormous. Sure. So, you know, it's one of these situations no one can ever truly judge which way we would ever feel mm. if we were confronted with that situation. So this is a very, very sad case. But even sadder was reading that now I think he does begin to regret that he did this because he severed the relationship with two out of three of his children. I think he felt that the children would probably judge their mother. Yes. And instead of judging the mother, they judged him by saying, why have you done this? So, again, there's total confusion on his part. You know, why I'm the cuckolded husband, have the children turned against me? Surely they would understand how I felt. But no, they didn't. They thought what he did to make it so public was wrong. Right. So, um, as far as we know. And also, if he had not highlighted it, I suppose, I mean, all of the things that you can imagine went round in his head as he decided what to do about this. I mean, say, for example, he decided to, to, to keep stum and say nothing. Um, what if the real father had suddenly emerged at some point down the road and turned up and said to the kids as they are now grown up, by the way, I'm your real dad? Well, this can happen, and it does happen. Yeah. But I think that it is unlikely that the real father would have done that because he's kept quiet for 20-something years, yeah. has not made any contribution, and I think the likelihood of him coming out of the woodwork is about zero. So I think 
um, in hindsight, this father is probably thinking, I wish I hadn't done this now. Right. Um, and it's a very sad situation. I only hope that his children, in due course, understand his knee-jerk reaction. And as his life is coming to a close, can somehow get back together with him and understand he's been a father to them and he should stay a father to them till the end of his time. Yes, indeed. And I mean, interesting that uh, I've just been sent a, a tweet here about something called the NPE Friends Fellowship, which is an organisation which proves there's more of this going on than you think. Apparently provides emotional yes. support when you find out you're an NPE, which is a not parent expected, meaning that when you thought you were the parent of a child, uh, but it then gets proven through DNA testing that you're not the actual biological parent. Yes, well, it, it, it's there. That organisation is there. But we also have to understand how it feels for the children as well. Um, I have a friend um, in America who um, a woman came up to her when she was 45 years of age and said, oh, yes, you're the one that got adopted. And she didn't know that oh, her God. parents weren't her real parents. Right. So at 45, she discovered that her entire life had been a lie. Mm. And since that time, she's been desperately trying to discover who her real parents are and has never been able to do so. No. So again, she said a part of her felt missing. Um, she didn't know her medical history. She felt very strange and has no idea who she really is. And that impacted on her as well. So we have to look at it from everyone's point mm. of view. But I would say anyone going through this, don't rush to suddenly give up your own children because they have been your children. You've accepted and treated them as your children. Think about what you're doing before you do anything. No, of course. And do you think that the more advanced sort of DNA studies that are being done and, and the fact that we now know so much more about DNA makes it easier uh, in these situations or more difficult? I mean, as a lawyer, um, you must be happy, I suppose, that things can be proven easier. Um, but it's created a whole bunch of other problems that nobody really foresaw. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, we, we have to use the paternity testing quite a lot. If, for example, someone is suggesting that um, a man is the father of yeah. their child or children and he says, no way, you know, she's had multiple partners, it's not me, mm. you know, um, and then there is a DNA testing and then they are discovered to be the parent, they have to then have the financial responsibility for it. So the financial thought of that puts a lot of people off accepting paternity in the first place, which is why we have to go to these laboratories mm. and deal with them. But do it yourself is not a good idea. If you want to find out who you are, be very careful that you don't find something out that you don't want to. No, I think that's very good advice. Vanessa, as ever, thank you very much indeed. Vanessa Lloyd-Platt there uh, talking to us about this growing problem, it would seem, of men being uh, discovering that they are not, in fact, the true biological father of the children they thought that they had sired. It's an extraordinary situation. There's even, as I just said there to Vanessa, uh, an organisation that will help you through it if you discover that you are not the parent that you thought you were. I mean, do you really want to find out? Because I don't. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Help. When, when I was younger, when so I much was younger, younger than today. I never, need, I never needed anybody's help in any way. Now, but now these days are gone. Days I'm gone. not so self-assured. Now I find a change my mind and open up the door. 
This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham Matthew Wright back, of course, at one o'clock with Kevin O'Sullivan and a rip roaring show taking you all the way through until four o'clock. Eamon Holmes, of course, from then. Uh, 0344 499 uh, is the number to get in touch with us. Right now, though, we're going to talk about the NHS because the big story politically of the day, uh, and you might say medically as well, uh, is, of course, uh, Theresa May, the Prime Minister up in Liverpool, announcing a new injection of cash and capital, £4.5 billion spent on getting health bodies and local government to work more closely together. Uh, the NHS are saying that up to 500,000 more lives will be saved in the next decade by improving treatment for major killers, including cancer and heart disease. They're going to work on better detection rates. They're going to work on uh, more doctors, more nurses, more GP consultations, a renewed focus on prevention, all manner of things, uh, which all sounds terribly good. Uh, let's see whether it's actually going to make any difference. Dr Mike Smith, uh, who's a regular commentator on the NHS, is with us. Uh, Dr Mike, a very good morning, a very good afternoon, I should say, and Happy New Year. Yeah, and to you, Mike. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Yeah, it's the 20.5 billion over the next five years. That's to say, 2023. And I was able to watch it on television after the chief executive presented his report about the next 10 years, yeah. um, and then the prime minister commented, and and she said uh, more or less at the top of what she uh, was saying, which is what I've been saying as long as I can remember, that 20 to 30 percent of people in acute hospitals don't need to be there. Yes. They're there because they're using the hotel services when they should either be at home or in a residential care home. Um, and that, of course, takes up, the, the hospital service takes up 50% of the 114 billion NHS budget. And if, in fact, we could take 20 or 30% to the place where they'd be better treated at that way, of course, it would, it would make the hospital so much more efficient. Um, and, and certainly it would be what the patients want and what their relatives nearest and dear mm. want. Now, um, the, the extra credit point uh, five billion, they're going to be giving, instead of only a quarter of it to GP and mental health services as present they get of the budget, they're going to be getting a third of it. So, um, in fact, they're going to get a, a bit extra in proportion for the purpose being to uh, concentrate on um, early detection, prevention, getting people to lead better lives. Um, and as somebody said in the press conference, you know, in, in a hundred years, in, in, yes, in a hundred years time, one in three females who live longer than males anyway, one in three is going to live to a hundred. Mm. And so not only do we have an increasing population age now on average, but we're going to get it a lot more in the coming years. And it's, that's, Therefore, provision has to be made for what is in, in, in needed for them in terms of the numbers of having to be treated. They, they went into all sorts of other things like, you know, more medical schools yeah. coming along to train more doctors, um, more nurses, hopefully. Um, but it, it really is focusing on prevention and focusing on local care, which is what is most important, um, and uh, diminishing the, the role of uh, hospitals, a role that they don't need to play because, in fact, they're just acting as a hotel for between one sure. and five, yeah, and one in three patients that are in there. I mean, the thing that's sort of cheering me, I suppose, is the fact that albeit sometimes things get called things that they're not, but it's being called a long-term plan, a plan for the next ten years. And and you and I have often spoken about this before, uh, Mike. That one of the problems we have in this country is that we don't plan very well. We don't really make a, a sort of you know provision for things that might happen in the future. It's always you know lurching from one government to another, uh, you know, one uh, policy to another, from sort of government to government whereas at least if they're now seeing that they need to plan minimum 10 years ahead that's got to be a good thing isn't it well of course it is and and you know as you've heard me say before there are 600 different authorities in the nhs yes. who have to be consulted mm. before there's any real movement i mean 
it's if you ran an army like this, you'd be you'd be nowhere. You know, they have to leave it to the local commanders to get on with whatever yeah. it is that the army needs to be doing. It's much the same in the health service. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the other things that's suggested is that more and more practices should be having um, on online IT facilities so patients can actually make and cancel appointments and and order their uh, repeat prescriptions. Mm. Now, in my part of the world, this already happens, but in so many bits of the country, it doesn't, right. and it makes it so much easier for the older patient who is IT competent and increasingly more and more older patients are uh, and it also of course makes it cuts down a lot of, of just the pure administration that uh, GPs and their staff are uh, having to put up with at the moment. No, quite. And of course, um, normally speaking, and this is the only other thing that I found sort of vaguely amusing, as I said at the start of the, uh, the the segment here, you know, the Tories are not really getting that much credit for this. Maybe Theresa May has worked out that it's better not to try and even get the credit and just let the NHS take it all. Because at the moment, um, it looks as though Labour are being quite quiet about this. They're not really kicking off and saying, yeah, but, you know, this, that and the other, they should be spending money here rather than there this is a waste of time and all of that we are hearing noises at the moment that there's a billion pound shortfall uh, in this year's budget um but not too many criticisms going on at the moment no, no. Well, there's other things on their mind as well, as you know, as well as I do. Uh, the other good thing that came out as uh, part of the um, TV interview that I watched is that uh, some hospitals are introducing what they call amb- ambulatory units. That's yes. a complicated way of uh, taking people aside from the A&E departments, those that can walk and don't really need to be in a hospital, taking them into this unit. And there was one on from the uh, Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. And it was uh, showing you how they are doing the investigations, getting what treatment is needed. If somebody needs intravenous treatment, of course, they can do it there. And you don't really need to be in hospital for that. And they're getting all this done very quickly. And then the individual goes back to to, to home. Uh, And that, too, is a great idea because otherwise you put them in a bed. Once you put them in a bed, it's going to take you at least 36 hours Mm. just uh, domestically to get them out again. And so if you can have these ambulatory units, you know, people who can walk and can be uh, dealt with for services like like this that would be another great step forward and i hope they're going to bring that in increasingly yes and what about these different authorities and these different sort of you know ends of, of the businesses do you see any any way that they're going to simplify that well about five years ago i think they introduced the um sticky toffee pudding as a sustainability and, and <laughs> transferability uh, you know the yeah. nonsense. Um, um, that, that was uh, in, in order to get the local authorities and the hospitals and the general practitioners and uh, community service all making joint decisions. And in some parts of the country, it's worked brilliantly. Other parts, they just say, oh, no, 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 you know, I mean, it's exactly the same. You're dealing with so many authorities. Um, in you know, some parts of the country, that worked so well that, you know, the patients were getting better quicker and weren't dying so frequently. The mm. staff were happy and they were keeping within their budget. Now, they could do it, and the only suggestion that one can make is that people in the areas where it couldn't be done go to those areas where it was and seeing what they're doing that the others aren't. Uh, but, you know, again, as I say, 600 different authorities, um, it's, uh, the mind, it boggles the mind. Well, it, it does it seem as though there are still many, many areas where they're very management-heavy, and you'd think that in, in, this, in this scenario, having set this thing up yeah. for 10 years of, of a long-term plan, some, yeah. some, some provision would be made to simplify that whole structure. <laughs> I've been I've been involved in working with and for the health service a long time, and I've seen this trying to go on all that time. It's it's a it's a big problem. I mean, it, you know, it is getting better slowly, and some of the unnecessary jobs have been cut back. But um, 
you know, may we go on in the way forward and, and mm. improve somewhat better, yeah. Yes, well, I mean, let's at least doff our hats for once to the NHS and to uh, the Tories for actually giving them some money and doing something because they don't get that very often. Dr Mike Smith uh, on the NHS announcement today. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio. App. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.